Hello there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. Well, hello there. And in this episode, which will probably appear in your podcast player entitled Catherine Bigelow, we are going to be looking at the films of Catherine Bigelow. It wasn't just a clever title. No. Uh, like shitty <laughs> Beatles. Yes. There's not much reason behind this. She's been on our list for a while, and we are aware that there aren't that many uh, female directors, well, at all, but certainly represented in what we've covered. But to be honest, it was like, well, we could be fancy doing this at this point. That'll do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, well, of the films we'd seen already, we at least liked some of them. So I guess that's a good starting point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to be covering all of the films, just our usual selection of six. Um one of which, uh, sorry, one film very much excluded simply because I've seen a Sean Penn film this year and I've put it for a podcast we recorded recently and that's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be skipping straight over the weight of water. Uh, but we're going to begin quite near the beginning with Near Dark. Yes, well, sadly no Dennis Quaid in the selection for you either. Yes, Near Dark, where Adrian Pastar's Caleb Colton picks up an unfortunate condition from a young woman, Jenny Wright's May, that he meets at the local dive bar of whatever small midwestern town he's in. No, not crabs, but vampirism. The two, however, do seem to have struck a chord as they talk through the night, but May mysteriously bolts off just before sunup for largely not going on fire reasons, as Caleb discovers comes the morning. He's saved from a fate, well, exactly like death, by May's family in their blacked-out RV headed by Lance Henriksen's Jesse Hooker, who reluctantly, at Mason's insistence, overrules Bill Paxton's annoying, supposed-to-be-intimidating Nuther Severin, who'd rather see the newest member of the family cast out. Rounding out the family are Jeanette Goldston's Diamondback, Jesse's girl, I wish that I had Jesse's girl, apologies to Rick Springfield, and child vampire Homer, Joshua John Miller, who basically gets the story arc of Let the Right One In condensed into three lines of dialogue. <laughs> While Caleb is trying to come to terms with his new life, new love, and new hunger for blood, and his understandable reluctance to give in to the latter, the family tear across the Midwest, killing and feasting and arsoning, in a complete mockery of the masquerade most vampire films have about blending in to avoid detection and all that. So, it shouldn't be all that hard for Caleb's dad, Tim Thomerson's and younger sister, to follow the trail, and when these meet, Caleb will have to choose between his two families. Now, I thought I'd seen Near Dark before, but I think I'm confusing it with the slightly similarly themed Lost Boys, which although I can barely remember it, I'm fairly comfortable in saying is a much more enjoyable film because Near Dark really wasn't very interesting to me at all. Uh, I don't have all that much to complain about in terms of the filmmaking. I mean, the plot on a theoretical level is solid enough to carry it, but I just could not bring myself to care about any of these characters. I thought Bill Paxton would be good for a laugh, but he very much isn't. And Lance Henriksen acquits himself better, but he's still not doing very much at all. Um, unfortunately, this film is based almost entirely around the white-hot, blistering chemistry that they're isn't between Passadar and Wright, and without that, this is basically Twilight with a bit of pyrotechnics in the final reel. Now, I don't hate it, but I sure as hell don't care about it. Minor plaudits for an interesting, if ultimately not all that fitting, Tangerine Dream soundtrack, but that's a recommendation for Spotify, not Netflix. Yeah, didn't do a great deal for me at all. Yes. uh, You said, Scott, that you um, really struggled to care about it. I really struggled to watch it. Mm -hmm. It it was so bad. If if I hadn't known that there were considerably better um, films in the future for Catherine Bigelow, if I'd come into this new to her work and this is what mm. I started with, I may have just given up there and then. It's yeah. so bad. Also, special Andy plaudits to the Nightmare soundtrack by Satsuma Nightmare, <laughs> uh, which, I mean, there may be a place for... A Tangerine Dream soundtrack. It's not a vampire film. It's not this vampire <laughs> film. And yeah. I think my ears may still be bleeding. <laughs> so it was a weird choice. Um, I wonder... I, mean, I don't think this did very much back in the day, but I think it was... People have come back to this film and liked it for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. It, it, it does sort of tie in with the kind of evolution of vampire films from sort of the high and mighty, like, high... Uh, fantasy down to some more realistic or quote unquote realistic <laughs> scrabbling around you know beasts rather than that but um, by the time I got to see this I think I've seen a similar trick done far better in other films like 30 Days of Night or something like that where um, it, it takes a bit more it, it, it kind of leans more into the animalistic side of vampirism rather than the um, floating around in capes and turning into bats and all that sort of stuff. Well, that stuff's uh, much more interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. I just, there's a couple of things that amused me that came out of uh, this, though. First is that I led me to a, a user review on IMDb in which said user wrote that this may be the most realistic portrayal of vampires ever. Mm, mm, mm. Personally, I yeah. think that's that would be any film that vampires aren't in. Yes. <laughs> and the other thing was, it made me think while I was watching this that there may be like three and a half good vampire films and that's it. Yeah. Um, and certainly I know there are a lot of them, so I've not seen all of them. But of the ones that I know and or that I've seen or that I know sufficient about... There are not very many good films, and they're mostly all just really dull. Um, something I posted on Twitter, and apparently people love their vampire films, because I got a lot of replies to that, <laughs> including one person, uh, Nolan, who said that Near Dark was his favourite vampire film. Um, okay, I'm not going to call it in terms of like saying he's wrong or anything. Just, I, I honestly don't see what there is to like in it, and nothing happens. <laughs> Um, it's also made me think, not for the first time, I'll admit, that I'm not sure Bill Pax is all that great, actually. Much loved as he was. Yeah, he, he does do much the same character most times, to varying degrees. Um, <laughs> he just has a dial that he turns up and down. And <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I mean, interesting, it seems like a bit of an Aliens reunion, this film. That, uh, yeah. Aliens, he's quite distinctive as... Hudson, and then I actually really, really like him in True Lies. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I'm thinking, actually, as much love as he is, I kind of think he stinks. <laughs> <laughs> that may be a little strong, but uh, yeah, he certainly wasn't doing anything for me in this film, but nobody was. So he was in good company there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, honestly, I, I really, really struggled to concentrate on this film at all. Uh, and it felt like twice the length. It's what, 90 minutes? 94 if minutes, that. something like that. It's, yeah. it's not a long film and I could barely concentrate on it. Uh, yeah, it's... It, I don't see the point of the film. It doesn't have anything to say. Nothing interesting happens. No, There are no interesting characters in it. And he gets cured to vampirism somehow. How did that happen? Because like, honestly, I, my attention completely wandered by that point. Like, I came back to like, why is he not a vampire now? He gets a transfusion from his dad. Seemingly with his dad's blood, but doesn't really say then where did the vampire blood go? Shouldn't that have then presumably went into his dad? I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, it's definitely not Blade. No, Blade tries <laughs> to explain that. Yes, <laughs> well, one of the many many ways in which it's not Blade. Yeah, <laughs> there's a couple, <laughs> one or two. Yeah, um, yeah. It says I don't feel we had very much to say either. Yeah. Um, I suppose the idea is that it's trying to set up his, him choosing between his new life and his old, but it doesn't. He doesn't really want to be a vampire at any point, so it's not really much of a choice, is no, it? No, um, <laughs> like, this is where he ended up. Um, yeah. He never seemed particularly content there, but we don't even see enough of his other life to have an idea what his other life was. So he's, no. and he's working on a farm, I guess. That, that, yes. That's it, and he's a <laughs> busy not being a vampire. Yeah, he's a he's a creepy git because of trying to coerce the girl to kiss him when he's given her a lift home. So he's not a particularly nice person, but I mean, I've seen worse. It's more just that he's... He had a hat. <laughs> this is my abiding memory from Scott. He had a hat. Yeah. <laughs> a fancy hat or just a hat? Just a hat. <laughs> I think that hat is particularly just a hat because it's, um, it's a hat that most people in that area probably have. Yeah, <laughs> no, they don't share just the one hat. I mean, they all have a very similar or identical hat. They don't just have the, that hat and pass it around no. or anything, you know. It's not a timeshare. <laughs> like no. Well, fair enough. I think I think we both agree there's not an awful lot for us in Near Dark, but uh, we'll move on to a somewhat more popular film with Point Break. Yes, uh, in which improbably named Johnny Utah. Keanu Reeves is a new recruit from the FBI Academy whose first posting sees him in the bank robbery section of the Los Angeles office. Here he is partnered with Gary Busey's veteran agent Pappas, whose theories on the identities of their most wanted gang of robbers are largely mocked by the rest of the office. Young Johnny, though, is willing to listen to his older colleague and, wouldn't you just know it, Pappas was right all along. The gang are the ex-presidents, a highly efficient and disciplined crew who hide their identity by wearing masks of former US presidents. 
based on the small amounts of evidence that has been recovered, Pappas believes them to be surfers, using the proceeds of their crimes to fund their eternal wave-chasing summer. The athletic Utah then begins to learn to surf so that he can go undercover in the surfing community to identify suspects. Through his instructor and girlfriend, Tyler, Laurie Petty, Utah meets Patrick Swayze's Bodie, a bull artist who regularly spouts a bunch of spiritual hokum about oneness and what it is to actually live and this is largely what I heard every time Patrick Swayze <laughs> spoke, while in reality being a violent bank robbing thug. Though it'll be a while until young Johnny realises that. There are other members of the ex-presidents of course, but since they don't have characters I won't bother introducing them. <laughs> After an initial... Incorrect identification, Utah finally realises that the robbers he's after are Bodie and his friends. Though his first attempts to apprehend him goes wrong, and a butt-hurt Patrick Swayze raises the stakes considerably, including forcing Johnny to take part in a crime and having Tyler held hostage. But he's a totally likeable Zen dude. How could he? Man. <laughs> There's a scene in Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz that references Point Break's most famous scene, where a frustrated, conflicted Keanu Reeves impotently fires his pistol in the air as he finds himself unable to fire an escaping Patrick Swayze. It's also Point Break's best scene, but largely because it's being referenced in another film, one that's actually good. <laughs> and Hot Fuzz demonstrates precisely what's wrong with Point Break. The friendship between Danny and Nicholas is believable, and therefore also the disappointment of conflict. Between Bodie and Johnny? Absolutely not. There's no chemistry between them at all, due in no small part to the fact that the characters actually don't share that much screen time together before Bodie's membership of the ex-presidents is revealed, though that only compounds the felony. Curiously enough, Point Break does have a relationship with good chemistry, and from the moment of meeting, thanks to a successful respect-earning shortcut, and that's that between Johnny Utah and Pappas. But whether the problem lies primarily in the writing or in Swayze, I'm not sure. The ending can also, in the parlance of our times, do one. The absolutely best way to punish Bodhi would be to deny him his greatest desire, his longed-for encounter with the waves created by the 50-year storm. Instead, the murderer, kidnapper and thief is, inexplicably, granted experience. I often appreciate a downbeat ending, but certainly not here, especially when it's for some reason intended as a happy one. And it's not that Point Break's a bad film. Pappas and Utah are fun. And when was the last time you said that about Gary Boosie? Um, oh, Gary Boosie's always fun. <laughs> yeah, but this time he's, he's actually... <laughs> to, to a certain degree. I mean, for a while before it becomes just scary. <laughs> this time Gary Boosie's meant to be fun, Scott. He, he, he's not being Quigley the dog. <laughs> Poor Gary Boosie. Uh, yes, I think that accent quite severely broke him. Uh, he does have my sympathy. Uh, as I say, though, it's not the point breaks a bad film. Pabs and Utah are fun. There are some good action scenes. John C. McGinley's face is punched. That's always fun. <laughs> but the whole thing is absolutely undermined by the void where the film centre ought to be. Yeah, I always thought it's a film that has something of an outsized cultural footprint, given the actual quality of it. I don't know if it's a kind of passing of the hunk torch between Swayze and Keanu Reeves, or, or what it was that lit a torch under this particular film in the imagination. But I've, I've always thought it's all right. Um, never really much more than that. It's like a solid enough procedural with the kind of surfing that's put into it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't find there's an awful lot special about it, which uh, yes. is a bit strange given how high regard it is. And uh, I, I believe a lot of the reasons people do like it is the relationship between Swayze and Keanu Reeves, which is, is weird because, like you say, there's not really much. <laughs> There's not enough scenes with them in the same frame exactly. to be an awful lot of it. it. I mean, there could have been one, but it it does suffer a bit from Keanu Reeves at this point not being the best actor. I mean, obviously he's become a force for good, but not necessarily at this point in his career. Um, but there's points where he's been... He's, he's all right most of the way, but there's a few points where he's been stretched a little bit too far, like that that bit at the start where he's um, having a shouting match with Boosie. And it's like, eh, okay, I'm not quite buying you here, but yeah. y- you'll do. <laughs> I mean, the thing with Keanu Reeves, though, is like, even, yeah, he's... He's never been the greatest actor, and he has stretched in this. I think it's quite early on in his career. Yeah. He's still likable, though. Yeah, I always yeah, like him. Reason, I, but when it comes to Patrick Swayze's character, I do not like him not one little bit, and that's a big <laughs> problem because you're supposed to. Yeah, you're supposed yeah. to be on Keanu's side when he uh, lets him get away. Like, no, shoot him in the face. He's not a good person. Yeah, <laughs> and you find out later just how not a good person he is. 
yeah, that is such a... It's the central thing of the film, is their friendship. And there isn't a friendship, so yeah. the film doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know. It's all right. Um, I didn't watch it, but I did download the uh, remake. But yeah, I'm not going to watch that, because why would I? <laughs> no, the, the original... Well, maybe there's... We know this is not why this was made, but we keep saying that if you're going to remake anything, make me films that didn't work. Yeah. But you know, it's, it'll probably still be lesser than the original. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I thought too is that it, did, it feels like a bit of lazy writing, I guess. They missed their opportunity. They, like, Pappas has meant to have been on this case for years, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. He's a veteran agent and they missed their best opportunity to get the, the ex-president's because he's having his lunch. Yeah. Really? <laughs> that just feels so sloppy. Yeah. Both in terms of the character, but the writing as well. It's like, eh, really? And you could have like exactly the same thing happen, but for you know, a less stupid reason, like they were arguing about some point of procedure or what they should do or something, but not just, oh no, I'm, I'm having my lunch now. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, but it's Gary Boosie, so it's kind of believable. <laughs> it doesn't have his tinfoil suit, though, which was clearly Pete Boosie. <laughs> yes. His tinfoil suit that somehow lets his, the top of his body stay suspended in midair when his legs are cut away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's not go down the predator rat hole, though. Um, rabbit hole. Yes. Uh, uh, I'm getting quite pleased to know that you felt largely the same as me about Point Break. It's got, it's like, I hadn't watched it in a long, long time. It was one of those films that I was like, I remember being, it's all right. Although, mm-hmm. to be honest, I couldn't remember much about it beyond like the opening bank robbery scene and the yes you remember masks and a bit of surfing a bit of surfing and, and diving the, gun, the gunshot yeah. and the yeah. <laughs> um the gully there um and i watched it and it's like yeah why is this so beloved yeah i can it, it's not bad and there are, there are some good action beats in it you know so you can see this there's some of what well, i think well, i suspect we will come on to talk about more through this podcast but in the Catherine Bigelow's strengths is action i think absolutely yeah i, I feel in many ways she's thinking like um a female analogue to James Cameron. Yeah. Um, and they have worked together, so there's, there's yeah. maybe um, there's some synergy there. But, uh, so you can see like some of their, her action and credentials there, but the film itself is like, eh, guess it's okay-ish. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a reputation is very outsized and I don't understand it at all. Yeah, I concur. Right then, let's move on to, well, Collaboration with James Cameron, as I've just mentioned, in fact, Scott. Yes, which is Strange Days. Strange Days breaks Predator 2's record of the shortest expected time for societal collapse (laughs) and simultaneous technological advancement with this 1995 film set in 1999, leveraging some turn-of-the-millennium tension to show a Los Angeles sitting on a powder keg of racial and class tension. Wandering around with a match is Ralph Fiennes' ex-cop Lenny Nero, who now sells squid discs on the black market to rich clientele. What's that, you grudgingly ask? Well, a squid disc is a direct recording of someone's experience that you can then download into your own mind and experience that experience as if you were experiencing that experience. And it's also a mini-disc. Yes. Very clearly. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Sleezing his way around town, somewhat grudgingly aided by his friends, Angela Bassett's Lornette Mace Mason, a bodyguard and limousine driver, and Tom Sizemore's Max Peltier, a fellow ex-cop and now private detective. Before long, Lenny is pulled into a whirlwind of events that I'm not sure are worth recapping in any detail, otherwise we'll be talking about it for as long as it would take to just watch the film. Uh, but it starts with a now-dead hooker and friend desperately trying uh, to get a message and a squid this to Lenny, which could see danger brought to Lenny's ex-girlfriend, Juliet Lewis's Faith, who he still pines for. She's chosen her singing career over the relationship and is now shacked up with shady manager slash record label type Michael Wincott's Philo Gant, who's also dealing with the fallout from the death of a popular rapper, Glenn Plummer's Jericho One, who is the spearhead of a social movement. So, there's a lot of moving parts before we add in a couple of coppers trying to get hold of the squid disc with no regard for due process, and all of that's before we know exactly what this megaphone is going to tell us. So, it's a very complicated case, you know. A lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have yous, <laughs> and a lot of strands to keep in your head, man. Uh, but not arguably many more than the noirs that this steals its central structure from before giving it a gloss of cyberpunk and Blade Runner that I suppose rather dates the film but thankfully for me at least it's a point in time that I can rather get behind. I'll tell you how remarkable a film this is. Tom Sizemore's in it and he doesn't ruin it. (laughs) I I actually think he's quite good in it bringing the total number of tolerable Tom Sizemore turns to one. (laughs) Uh, 
Vines is uh, dependably engaging, of course, and his relationship with Angela Bassett plays out nicely over the course of the piece. Um, I perhaps wonder if this story will hold up at all to repeat viewing. However, I've only seen this once, and I liked it a great deal. Uh, well worth pulling off the shelf, particularly if, like me, this has been on your must-catch-up-with-this list for about the past 20 years or so. Oh god, I'm so old. Yes, lots of nice things in there. I like a lot of the uh, plot twists, a lot of the dialogue. I like a lot of the action scenes. You see some of it was kind of coming through from Point Break, I think. But a lot of the kind of first-person chase scenes are done quite well, which must have been a bit of a nightmare to film, technically, given the state of camera technology at the time. It's perhaps not so impressive from a modern perspective when you could do the same thing off a smartphone. Uh, But hauling a film cameras or however it was done through it would have been quite a bit more of a challenge back in 95 or 94 whenever they were shooting this. Yeah, um, a lot to like. I just like the story and I like all the characters and I think it all ties together quite nicely. It is clearly very far-fetched. I wouldn't go in here expecting a lot of verisimilitude, but uh, and, and yes, it's, it is puzzling why they set it in 99. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> very, very strange choice. Yes, I, I don't. I don't quite know what they were doing with that at all. But uh, that's that's the only sort of slight quibble with it. I don't know quite what they were going for for that. But uh, yeah, everything else I really rather enjoyed. So yes, yes. Uh, before I get onto my points, so I would like something to point out that in case anyone's any doubt about how much members of us in the film like the Big Lebowski, they've now managed to independently both reference the Big Lebowski and two different reviews in the same podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well done us, excellent. Without trying. Uh, yeah, that was one of my biggest problems with it, was why was it 1999? Yeah, it's weird. The technology doesn't make any sense at all. It's so unbelievable. And it's like, but yes, the why 1999? Was it just an opportunity to irritate me and show that they yet another, another example of the fact that during the 20th century, most of the Western world forgot how to count? Yes. <laughs> given the new millennium started in 2001. Yeah. <laughs> Still annoyed about that. <laughs> I know how to count. It didn't start at the year zero this calendar. To... <clears throat> anyway, um, <laughs> I, I will just get myself into a over nothing important anymore. <laughs> but yes, it's it's a strange thing. Why do that? It added nothing. You can still imagine that people would still be a bit sort of slightly exuberant, shall we say, on New Year's Eve in any given year. Yeah. Um, and given the history of racial tensions and stuff in that city in particular, and this film made only just a few years after the early riots. Yeah, yeah. Um, it wouldn't be hard to believe that that was going to continue. So, like, that central idea that when they discover the truth of the tape, like, that it could cause people to die because of, like, rioting and revenge killings and stuff... All of which is actually an interesting topic. Yeah. And true, even though it's still, you know, it's like, well, you still shouldn't hide the truth, but, you know, you can see why you would say to do that. That it's quite believable that would still happen like 20 years in the future when your technology wouldn't be so bizarre. Yeah. And it's puzzling as well because obviously I think that's why they wanted to make the film from what I can remember when I was doing a bit of research on it. But why you felt the need to do a film about those riots and then give it a, a vague science fiction coat of paint over the top of it? To tell the story, if that's what you want to tell the story, just tell that story, which kind of, she, she, I guess Catherine Bigel does later on agree with Detroit, but why set it five years or so ahead of when you're making it? As you say, why not set it 20, 30, 40 years? We would take it as read that you're talking about the same situation. We understand how analogies work. It's not, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just a strange choice. Yeah, it's, um, apart from that, like, this is, it's not a film that I'd had on the list to watch, but it's one that I've kind of always been aware of. I got quite a lot of buzz at the time, and I hadn't seen it before this podcast, and I really, really enjoyed it. The the sort of central mystery of what was on the the disc kept me going for quite a good part of it. Yeah. And I actually really liked in the end that it wasn't actually connected to anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> though given how much of that powered my interest, I am not sure how well this will stand up to a rewatch. That's my would be my concern. Yes, I do share that a little bit, yeah. But other than that, I really enjoyed it, even though I was certain from the moment that Tom Sizemore appeared in the film that the film was going to end with the <laughs> revelation that it ended with. Um, cause yeah. I, so, are you going to subvert my expectations? You're not, are you? No, cause it's, <laughs> Tom Sizemore's in this film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> saw that coming because of the character. You're saying, why did you cast him? Clearly he was going to be doing this thing. 
So I, I am trying to think that if there is another tolerable Tom Sizemore performance, maybe Saving Private Ryan, because it's not a very big role. But there's not Fame many catcher. of them. <laughs> no. Oh dear. No. Oh dear, no, dear, dear, dear. No. He's I think a, that counts as minus several hundred. So He even <laughs> manages to be kind of annoying in the, like, what, 30 seconds he's in Point Break. So yes. it's generally not a, a good, <laughs> a, a welcome sign. But yeah, uh, so I've, <laughs> I've sidetracked myself again. I need to stop doing that. Yeah, it's it's such a really entertaining film. If I have any reservations with it, it's maybe that the end with Vincent D'Onofrio with impunity murdering people in the crowd and just running through and nobody reacting. Yeah, um, it bothered me a wee bit. And then uh, later on, just when everybody's just beating on Angela Bassett, so it's like the last what, five minutes maybe wasn't so sure about. The rest of them thoroughly enjoyed. Really entertaining film. Good, good. Um, yeah, that, uh, I do sometimes miss the that little brief smattering of cyberpunk uh, dramas that we got for a while. And, um, you, know, you don't get so many of them these days, but I do miss them somewhat. So that will bring us on to the next on our list, I take it, uh, K-19, The Widowmaker. Yes. So we sail into the dubious waters of based on a true story of K-19, The Widowmaker, <laughs> the story of the Soviet Union's first nuclear missile submarine. It's 1961, the height of the Cold War, and the Central Committee is desperate to demonstrate to the United States that it has the same first strike capability as its opponent, and the Soviet Navy's newest flagship is rushed to sea in order to conduct a test launch sure to be noted by US spy planes. The only problem is, well, all the problems. (laughs) Inadequately fitted out, poorly built, missing key equipment and personnel, all the greatest hits of the Soviet regime. There have also been a number of deaths during construction, and a final note of doom is instilled in the crew by a failed champagne bottle smash, sailors being a superstitious bunch. Hmm. I pronounced morons very oddly there. (laughs) But I digress. There are also a few changes in the crew manifest, with a new doctor, Peter Sarsgaard's inexperienced reactor officer, and Harrison Ford's Captain Alexei Vostrikov parachuted in at the final moment. This last, because Liam Neeson's Captain Polenian dared suggest to his superiors that everything wasn't hunky-dory with the construction. The first half of the film consists of the preparation for their sea trial, the boat's launch, then Vostrikov's rigorous and unpopular drilling of the crew, which leads to injuries and mutinous thoughts. The test missile is successfully fired though, and for a moment the crew are jubilant and united. Then the cooling system on the nuclear reactor goes tits up, which causes a modicum of alarm for all aboard. <laughs> Still, no problem, they can use the backup system to cool it. Oh, they didn't install that backup system before setting to sea. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> really, it, it's a mystifying thing that the Chernobyl disaster happened under the same regime. Yes. Utterly baffling. <laughs> the second half of the film follows the crew's struggles to cool the reactor while temperatures rise in the men and, more crucially, around the nuclear fuel rods. See, here's the mistake the Soviet Navy did. They didn't get Bobby Carlyle from The World Is Not Enough. <laughs> Sean Connery has been much derided for his accent in John McTiernan's The Hunt for Red October, which personally I've never understood because I've never thought he was trying to do one. No. His character may have been from Lithuania on the page, but it was clearly from Lothian on the screen. <laughs> it's an approach Liam Neeson, and particularly Harrison Ford, ought to have tried. Poor Harrison. We all know he stopped carrying around the Star Wars holiday special, but what a time to try giving a crap again. The story deserves the effort, but it doesn't deserve that accent. <laughs> Accents. Whatever they are. Neeson and Peter Sarsgaard should be grateful to Ford, though, for hiding their similar but lesser crimes. <laughs> Fortunately, though, it is possible to look past those poor butchered syllables and enjoy Neeson and Ford's performances, and the fact that both are such alpha males means it's far from clear which of them will prevail when they inevitably come into opposition. Different casting could have given away too much and certainly made it less entertaining. I could watch K9 repeatedly, and have done so because submarine movie, <laughs> but it's definitely not my favourite of the genre. However, it is extremely well shot and the sense of the cramped, claustrophobic confines of the submarine is absolutely transmitted through the lens. Much of this is to do with the incredible preparations undertaken by Bigelow and her crew, including finding the blueprint for the real K-19 and building the sets based on it, then cleverly hiding camera tracks amongst the pipework and the ceiling. The director also enlisted former high-ranking submariners as consultants, 
and even went as far as having the cast take part in firefighting drills and other such activities to allow them to experience some of the same conditions faced by their characters. The plot is rather conventional, but Bigelow's action strength comes to the fore. Rats digging up the tension in the film's latter portions as the crew fights to stop the submarine blowing up and potentially precipitating World War III. The fact that I'm here talking to you does, though, rather give the ending away. <laughs> However, I am happier having to face Harrison Ford's accent than Rad Scorpions. <laughs> Just. Yeah, I don't think I'd seen K-19 before this. Um, it's surprising because I'm partial to it the old submarine movies myself but uh, yes it's, it, it works very well I think it's doing it's a nice little transition between Bigelow's perhaps more action focused stuff that she's been doing previously and you start getting a bit of the, the kind of more ratcheting of tension uh, which she'll deploy to great effect going forward and, uh, lo- lots of good performances masked somewhat by shady accents as you say uh, but I think the the characters come through very well yeah. and I think uh, there's lots of kind of heartbreaking moments uh, in there for for some particularly um, uh, Skarsgård's uh, officer who yeah I was going to say so we've talked about Peter Skarsgård a lot and I think we both agree that he doesn't really get the attention he deserves yes yes uh, when we would do last talk and probably uh, Shattered Glass Mm-hmm. He's really solid. Uh, he probably yeah. just might be better off if he'd ditched the accent here. But his character is yes. really sympathetic <laughs> and really well played. That that arc he has from absolute cowardice to absolute heroism. Yeah, and even calling it cowardice is a bit a bit harsh, given what he's been asked to do from someone who's just off university. <laughs> yeah, tough times for everyone on that boat. But yes, it's very well captured, and um, yes, rather. Entertaining throughout, lots of tense moments, lots of uh, lots of oh no, what's happened? What's going to happen next? Because you just know something else is going to happen. There's nothing in this film that's going to go be smooth sailing for anyone. So, lots of quality, awful decisions from higher up in the chain of command as well, which is always a nice thing to see in military films. <laughs> Top brass having no clue about anything. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, very effective film, um, very enjoyable. Not her best by a long chalk, but I think it's uh, certainly well worth uh, watching if you haven't done so already. Yeah, well, it's also interesting. Uh, there's, I've got the Blu-ray of this, but I would imagine, even if you watch this in stream or something, they'll be available on YouTube. There's a couple of interesting behind-the-scenes videos on the on the Blu-ray, and it's just it's just fascinating to see the amount of work that went into this. Right, like yeah. I said, with like, having the actual blueprints for the boat, then they went and visited <laughs> the actual K-19. And it's really because you see Harrison Ford like behind the scenes on this, he's there every step of the way. He's really interested in the the project and getting everything right. Um, mm. And like, how, how come he only seems to do that behind the scenes most of the time? Now? Because, I mean, I like Harrison Ford a lot, but he doesn't seem to try yeah. <laughs> on screen a lot of the time. But uh, as well as that, so they do things, the, the, the lengths they went to. I mean, some things are special effects, like the the scene when the submarine breaks through the ice is a one-eighth scale model shot. Mm-hmm. But the when they're standing on the conning tower out at sea, that was actually out at sea with a fiberglass hull on a barge or something. But they also found an old Russian submarine, <laughs> bought it and extended it um, f- um, fore and aft with fiberglass and stuff to make it the same length as the K-19 and actually took it to sea <laughs> as well as building all the insides to the actual plans of the K-19 and getting a, a Russian submariner in to check the spelling and to check all the things were believable and stuff it's like wow I, I adore that sort of effort and you don't always uh, you aren't always able to appreciate it on film. I mean, so if something looks truthy enough, yeah. generally that works on film. But I, I even more appreciation for the film, having seen those bits about just how much effort they put in beforehand. Yeah. So yeah, if you've seen the film, you should maybe check those bits out and see if you find them on YouTube afterwards. I'm sure they'll be in there. Um, even a, a little bit about how... They, well, they couldn't find any photographs of people who'd actually got radiation burns because basically they didn't photograph them because they didn't want any record of how bad it was. <laughs> yeah. So they kind of had to guess and go with based on written things, but decided that if they went realistic, it would just be impossible to watch. It would be so horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they kind of went sort of like a middle ground of, 
Yeah, it looks quite unpleasant and bad, but it's, yeah, it's actually not as bad as acute radiation burns would actually be. Yeah. Yes. It's not it's, a nice way to go. <laughs> no. So we'll move on to perhaps the high point of Catherine Bigelow's career, Scott, with the Hurt Locker. Yes, the Hurt Logger, in which Jeremy Renner's Sergeant First Class William James arrives in Iraq as a replacement bomb disposal expert. An opportunity opened up by Dead Man's Smouldering Boots, he joins Anthony Mackey's Sergeant J.T. Sanborn and Brian Geraghty's Specialist Owen Eldridge as they go about their extraordinary day-to-day activities of bomb disposal, which are anything but day-to-day. There's perhaps not all that much value in describing in great detail each of the bomb disposal vignettes that we see, as while each of them are quite excruciatingly tense experiences, they are as much there to gain an insight into the characters as they are said a light on the traumatic experiences of the soldiers undertaking this kind of work. A primary focus, of course, is on Renner's character, who seems like a reckless, thrill-seeking cowboy, and a large part of the success of the film is derived from his performance in taking us along as we try, and ultimately fail, to answer the question of why he's like this. Some people are just wired that way, it seems. On a second viewing, uh, there's perhaps only disappointment in a film that is otherwise blindingly well executed, uh, nail-biting stuff, with a clutch of excellent performances in lead and supporting roles, and some impactful, some might say explosive moments. Uh, extraordinary stuff, and I think in the last decade only Sicario has come close to building the same level of tension that Hurt Locker does. I don't think I have a great deal of innovative or informative things to tell you about The Heart Locker. Um, it was many people's top film of 2009 or 2008, depending on how you count it, and I broadly agree. Uh, required viewing, and also nice to see that it's one of the few films that seems to have turned a profit uh, for Catherine Brigwell, who's not had an awful lot of success with films that really deserved much, much better than the box office values that they got in the, the final analysis. Uh, Heart Locker, yes, um, I, I didn't belabor the point. I, I find it difficult to imagine that people haven't seen Hurt Locker. Um, it's one of the most well-respected films of the uh, past couple of decades. So if you haven't seen it, it's absolutely required viewing and you should do so immediately. Just extraordinarily tense stuff and uh, probably the best performance from everyone involved, certainly Jeremy Renner and probably Catherine Bigelow's uh, best film. Just a quite extraordinary achievement in... in Edge of the seat filmmaking. Assuming that one of the Catherine Bigelow films I've not seen, and like suddenly, you know, the one with mm. Sean Penn, it's like a masterpiece. Yes. masterpiece <laughs> then it's it's comfortably her best film for me. Um, I don't have a lot to add. It's, quite, it's so well made. It's so tense, and the characters are so believable too. And, and even the bits where it, it should be shocking, but the bit where Anthony Mackie's about to. Well, not about it, but considers blowing Jeremy Renner up. Yeah. You I, think he could do it, actually, at that point. Well, yeah, well. but you're also, <laughs> you kind of sympathise. Yes. You can see why. It's, <laughs> it's not that he's, between it's like, he's going to get me killed. I yeah. may have to kill him first. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, you can, you can absolutely believe that. It's like a series of vignettes, and they're all fantastic. And there's like different levels of tension and stuff. I just really, really enjoy it. There's, I think the only thing about the film I actually don't like is that it's that very small portion that's happening back in the United States. And it, compared to the rest of the film, which does so much with so little, it feels so ham-fisted. Yeah, and it doesn't that, is, that is the one, I think, issue I took with it at the time, and it still sticks out now, particularly because there's, there's one scene that tells you almost everything you need to know. And it's, there's a scene just in front of his little monologue to his kid where he basically explains what explains or tries to explain his character in as much of detail as you can in a couple of lines of dialogue, which seems to be the, the only reason it was shoehorned in. It didn't make a lot of sense to do it because you get everything the same from the scene before, I think almost immediately before, when he's in the supermarket and he's looking at the aisle of cereal. He's looking one way down and sort of quizzically saying, why is, this all, the, why is all this crap here? And then up the other way, <laughs> this infinite supply of... Um, Frosted cereals of, of various things. It's like you get everything you really need to know, and everything that he says in the, that ham-fisted speech from just that look. And I don't understand why that thing. It feels like something that was shoehorned in, but it, it seems like a studio note. You know, it, yeah. I have no no basis for that in fact or reality. But it just seems like the sort of thing that you would hold up as an example of. Here's a studio sticking their own in because they think you can't understand it. This bit context of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Now, see, it's that whole thing I find ham-fisted though that 
the ridiculous on those spelling out his inner thoughts to his kid is really yeah. bad. But I actually really dislike the supermarket scene as well because you got I honestly got everything that that tells you from the rest of the film. Yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah, <laughs> it just seems so. I'm not quite sure what the word is. Not amateurish, but just so kind of crass to mm. have him overwhelmed by the choice of cereals as the showing how he's completely disconnected from the world and there's nothing there for him and um, not really understanding that world anymore or anything like that. It's like, yeah, I got that from all of the rest of the film. Yeah. You could have you could have gone from like two days of Bravo Company, which is the last time you see them in Iraq, comes back, you see him at dinner uh, preparing the food with Evangeline Lilly and then just cut straight back to the Delta Company 365 days of their tour. Yeah. But you, all you needed was that one beat of going back in the United States. You see on back in the vacuum, you immediately get everything without any of that ham stuff in between. And it's true. The only thing about that film I don't like. It kind of frustrates me because it just, it's such a good film. It's like, it's just this tiny bit of tarnish in there that was not necessary. So, <laughs> and I can absolutely see where you're coming from with it being like a studio note. It's like, it feels like, oh, we need to explain this to people. Like, mm, really? Yeah. Well, if you need that explaining, well, I think you're probably not the audience for this film, quite frankly. Yeah, particularly because it doesn't really explain anything about Benner's character either. If you, if you take the rest of the film as an attempt to explore his character and why he's doing the things he's doing and he's in that line of work that he is, what he says doesn't really explain either other than, I like you doing it, which, fine, okay, but it's not really much of a satisfying explanation of all things. It's, it, may, it, it may well be true, and I'm happy to accept that, but I'd almost, I'd almost prefer it being a bit more enigmatic <laughs> rather than rather than have it put through those scenes. But yes, uh, we're picking nits, really. Um, <laughs> it shouldn't really focus on it. And just to clarify something I said earlier, because when I'm talking about these being vignettes, it does make it sound like it's not particularly well coherent. Uh, but it is. It all hangs together really well, and um, yeah. It's just the, just obviously the nature of the job. There's not going to be one real overarching narrative going through it other than they are in Iraq trying to get rid of bombs. So, uh, yeah, there's no slight intended in that, and it all works incredibly well. Yeah, and also there's a different sort of tension as well. Yeah. Because you've got the, sort of, the potential of the bomb going off, and then like the potential for, like, particularly the last scene with the guy with the cage around him that's been locked on for the misunderstanding and stuff, and actually all yeah. the sympathy to and then probably my favourite scene the one with the sniper yeah yeah uh, yeah it's just there's so many good good scenes in that film and it's like different approaches to all the stuff they would have to do and I know one of the criticisms at the time was that some of the things they do that they wouldn't have done and people were getting a bit like territorial I guess and I was like no no that this type of soldier would do this like yeah yeah I get that but it's a film and like any film that shows any type of job of any sort really it's like Quite often, especially something like the army, you're going to have like, it'd be very compartmentalised. One group of people would do the one thing, but you can't just show that because it would be like, they would be doing this one tiny bit thing every day for lots of days. So you have to kind of combine it to one person. So it's just not a valid complaint. Yeah. <laughs> it's a film. And as, as long as how it's done is presented in a reasonably realistic way, even if it wouldn't be them that did that particular thing, then I think you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the sort of thing to get hung up about on, on this. <laughs> anyway, yes, what we're saying is that it's very, very good, so you should watch it if you haven't. Yes. Do yourself a favour. Right, uh, we'll round things off today with a look at Half Past Dead. Sorry, Zero Dark Thirty. Half Past Dead's a Steven Seagal film, isn't it? Yes. I'm still at zero for Seagal. I intend to keep it that way, Scott, so please don't try and persuade <laughs> me otherwise. Zero Dark Thirty is another trip down True Story Lane with more meticulous preparation, though this time of an event more than a location. That event was the May 2011 infiltration of a compound in Obatobad, Pakistan, by US Navy SEALs, which resulted in the death of Osama bin Laden. Interestingly, the planned films actually intended to be about the fruitless years-long search for Bin Laden, but when the news of the death was released in Bigelow and writer Mark Bowl effectively tore up the film and scrambled to put together this story instead. <laughs> the film follows the CIA's investigation of Bin Laden's whereabouts through numerous years and numerous millions of dollars, and does so through the viewpoint of Jessica Chastain's Maya, a fictional analyst based on a number of real people. Things begin after some genuine audio of 9-11 victims in 2003 at a CIA black site where a terrorist suspect is being tortured by Jason Clark's Dan, as Maya silently observes. 
the suspects placed to her for leniency, because she's a woman, are soon shown to be misdirected. And, while perhaps not deserving of the killer description she has been given by her superiors in Washington, Maya is quickly seen to be hard, driven and determined. Outlasting Dan as he eventually wearies of the role and turns to Washington. She is single-minded in her pursuit of Bin Laden, to the likely exclusion of all else in her life, and she weathers attempts in her life, the death of a colleague and friend, if she has such things as friends, shifting political climates and lack of faith in her leads, until the point that her years of frustratingly barren work suddenly bear fruit and she pinpoints the location of a high-value target, possibly Bin Laden himself. The film climaxes with the seal raid on the compound and the identification of the USA's most wanted man. I recall very clearly, really, really, really not enjoying Zero Dark Thirty when it was released in the cinema, uh, and also being very critical of its portrayal of torture. Curious then that on revisiting it, I found it gripping and rewarding, and found the stance on torture considerably more neutral than I'd at least remembered it to be. A lot of my engagement this time around owes much to Justine, who does a stunning job of making interesting a character who is, well, barely a character. Maya is a cipher, a machine relentlessly analysing information, but Justine gives that machine a human face. She is more than that, demonstrating stoicism, imperturbability and other similar traits, but it's all stuff going in, with very little coming out. Though she shoulders the bulk of the film, Chastain is not alone and is a pretty fantastic cast, even in extremely minor roles, among whom are Mark Strong, Stephen Delane, Jennifer Ely and James Gandolfini. Direction-wise, there's less flair and less evidence of any particular Bigelow stamp, though it's really pretty appropriate given the topic. The standout scene style-wise is the SEAL team made shot in a cool, detached point-of-view style. The filmmaking in general gains more credit though, as with K-19, when you appreciate the effort put in in pre-production and the painstaking work to, for instance, recreate the Abadabad compound. Mark Ball's well-researched script is the core strength underpinning the film, and I found it gripping, though it is at times troubling, notably its fence-sitting and hand-waving about torture, which is a repugnant thing, though given the reaction at the time to that aspect of the film, plenty of people seemed to think it was making a particular statement though they tended to disagree on exactly what that statement was. <laughs> this time, however, I don't think that indicates that the truth somewhere, therefore lies somewhere in between. Uh, what I do think, though, is that you should watch it. Yes, yes. I I can't quite remember what I thought about it. I, th- I think I definitely liked it more than you did back in the day, and I, I still do. Being that it's a bit more of a realistic depiction of spycraft, I've always thought real spycraft is basically an Excel spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> it, I, I get the impression it was it's certainly nothing like his... Uh, Trendy as Bond would have you believe. Uh, it's uh, a lot of data analysis, and um, this, to a degree, is focused on that kind of more aspect of of, uh, of the spycraft. And somehow it manages to pull out still being a fairly entertaining film and uh, riveting watch, despite arguably the individual scenes when it's not dealing with something as emotive as the 9 11 events itself or the torture scenes, uh, a lot of the rest of the office work's pretty uh, bland but it still managed to kind of pull that through I think in, in part because Jessica Chastain is quite captivating as a character to uh, to pull you through on it, so it all works very well. Not sure if I enjoyed it more or less the second time through um, probably just as much um, I don't think it gained anything from a rewatch if, if you did enjoy it back in the day, I don't, I don't necessarily think I got anything more out of it this time round. I always thought it was fairly neutral to negative on, or at least factual about the, the, the torture stuff. It, it mostly shows that it doesn't work, which seems to be the general opinion of what the actuality of it. Um, you can't really get reliable information out of it, and it, that seemed to be more or less what it was showing here. But bringing my own lens to that particular aspect of it. Um, but yeah, the rest of it all works very well. Another um, deserved success for uh, Bigelow. So yes, uh, very good film. Yeah, nothing else in particular that you've not already said that wouldn't just be repeating what you're saying. Yeah, it was really quite good and I heartily enjoyed it. I'm just quite surprised at quite how much of a swing there was in my, my appreciation of it this time because I went back and looked at what I'd rated it. Um, mm-hmm. And I had like one star out of five. <laughs> I like this Seems harsh. <laughs> this is a clear four. What was I doing? Yes. Uh, I was kind of, well, not dreading, but I, was, I wasn't particularly looking forward to watch this. I thought, but I need to watch for this podcast, okay. 
And I, I do remember just being so bored by it. But this time I watched it, I was like, I was riveted. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if I was in the wrong mood the last time or sort of, because my appreciation for that sort of film has always been there. So it's not that, cause like, there are elements of like that like investigative stuff that I love. Um, yeah. So what's changed? I don't know. But I'm kind of glad it is because it's better to enjoy films than not enjoy them. <laughs> yes, so, tends so to be, that's yeah. good. I, I liked it this time, so that is better. <laughs> but yes, I'll shut up now. <laughs> You'll be pleased to hear. Uh, in fact, no, what, no, what, what I will mention is the small amount of feedback we have on Twitter. If that's all right with you. Absolutely. Right. Uh, for this, this, this FUDback. That's what we should call it. Scott FUDback. Yes. <laughs> How's that not occurred to us before? <laughs> Is from our good friend, Mr. Matt Toller, M, at M Toller on Twitter. He just asked about, in general, what people thought about the Catherine Bigelow films we're covering this. I've not seen Strange Days, but apart from that, she doesn't have a miss on this list. Sadly, Matt, we disagree. Though, if you're reading this on a podcast, you've doubtless addressed Harrison Ford's Russian accent in K-19. Again, Matt, accents. <laughs> and none of them Russian. Yes. <laughs> She's a consistently excellent director whose involvement makes me more likely to see whatever title is in question. She transcends this recent checklisting of gender and other identity traits and just makes great stuff. Talking of her other films, we have actually covered another Catherine Bigelow film already, uh, one of her intermissions perhaps last year, which was Detroit, which is similarly excellent. It's her most recent film, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. So we would heartily recommend that as well. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, no, I, sorry, I had one about her. Um, quick feedback from... Tengushi, I Tengushi. Enjoyed Strange Days. It's pretty disturbing. Mm, I'm not sure about disturbing. Um, maybe that's a Tom Sizemore thing. I don't know. It's, it's understandable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. Thank you guys for that feedback. It's always nice to, to hear from you. Nice to know we're not just speaking into the great internet void. Or are we? Who can say? Only you can validate us. Which you should do through the following vectors. That always works as a link, doesn't it? But it does actually. Well done, Scott. Yes. Uh, uh, do so. Twitter. Twitter.com. Or actually, no, just say at Fuds and Films, probably the way you normally say that, isn't it? That's why humans talk. Um, or Facebook.com slash Fuds on Film or podcast at Fuds on Film. That last one's email address. Remember that. Um, yeah. So do that, or we just won't know what's going on at all. Uh, we will speak to you again anon with some more film chat, but until such a time, I shall say goodbye, and I'm sure that Drew Tandale shall do too. Fare thee well. Ta-da! Ta-da.